but we belong to this community. And because we belong to them, we are going to orient ourselves around serving them with love, meeting them with their needs and being as vulnerable as we can and open and unarmed as we can. You reach halfway down, I'll climb halfway up While my heart just splits in the middle, while my heart just dies Welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. So thankful that you're here. Before we get started in today's episode, I wanted to make a brief appeal to your patronage. This podcast is supported completely and 100% by you. If you have in any way felt moved or challenged or impacted or enjoyed what you've heard, please consider going to our Patreon page. You can find the link in the show notes. You can also find that link at our website. Uh, can I say this at church.com and click on the Patreon button. Your donation in any amount is so helpful and I am greatly appreciative for it. My guest today is Pastor Sean Palmer. Sean is currently a teaching pastor at Ecclesia Church in Houston, Texas. In 2013, he was profiled in Christian Standard Magazine's 40 Leaders Under 40. He's a contributing writer for The Voice Bible Project. Uh, his writing's also been featured on Scott McKnight's Jesus Creed blog, Sojourners, Fox News, Christianity Today. Uh, he's also the co-host of the Not So Black and White podcast. Seek that out. Uh, again, that's called Not So Black and White podcast that he co-hosts with John Allen Turner. It is well worth your listen, and I have enjoyed listening to it as well. The topic at, at hand today is, is, is concerning his new book, Unarmed Empire, uh, in which Sean speaks to those that have been misled about church, uh, for anyone that feels blacklisted, uh, anyone that's been hurt. And, and so we discuss that and, and how the church can move forward as a whole how we can lean into a better community, to a, a heart of hospitality. So without further ado, uh, I would like to introduce you to Pastor Sean Palmer. Then it breaks again. I haven't seen my closest friend. Sean, thank you for being on the podcast with me today, and uh, I want to take some time here in a little bit to discuss your new book, um, Unarmed Empire, colon, In Search of the Beloved Community. But beforehand, um, I am almost certain that there will be some people listening that are just unfamiliar with you. Um, mm -hmm. So if you could just briefly give me a, a crash course of how you came to do the work that you do, and then um, we'll just kind of roll from there. I'm glad to be here, Seth. Thank you for having me on the show. I look forward to talking to you about the book. Uh, just a little bit about me. Um, I live in Houston, Texas. I am uh, the teaching pastor at a church here, uh, Ecclesia Houston. We're a multi-site church here. And uh, I have been in ministry, I guess, coming up, been pastoring churches. Uh, at the end of this month, it will be 20 years. I will have completed 20 years of doing that. So I started in the youth ministry world and did that for a dozen years before I moved into uh, senior ministry. And I've been doing that since since that time, both here in Texas and in California, a couple of different places. Um, I grew up in the South, Mississippi and, and Georgia, 
uh, went to, did my undergrad and went to graduate school at Abilene Christian University. So that's a school associated with uh, Churches of Christ denomination or (laughs) non-denomination, depending on who you talk to. (laughs) Right. And so um, that's that's about it. We live here in Houston. My, My wife and I have been married for almost 20 years. We have two daughters we think the world of. And uh, most of my ministry at this point is traveling and speaking and writing. I uh, do a good bit of writing, had a, a long-term blog for a while, wrote for Scott McKnight and some others. Gave that up about a year ago to write for Missio Alliance uh, to focus some of my uh, attention there. That's also who we do our podcast. I have a podcast called Not So Black and White with a friend of mine, John Allen Turner. And that's in partnership with Missio Alliance. So if you stumble across Missio Alliance, uh, you can look for me there and find just about everything that I've been up to in the last couple of years. Yeah, I have stumbled across their stuff and um, read some of their interpretation of the research on millennials leaving the mm-hmm. church and reasons why. Um, yeah, so I, I enjoyed that greatly. So would you... This is unfair. So I'm from Texas. I actually visited Abilene Christian and Hardin-Simmons University um, during the same whatever day they'll let you skip school as a senior day. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, they're just right down the street, so you made good use of your time. Yeah. Well, you have to have that note to prove that you went. So, um, or you, you know, you get you get called out. Uh, ultimately, I went to Liberty, but I, I have. So my brother was born in San Dimas, and so I've lived in in California. I've lived in Texas. So unfair question, unrelated to anything. In and out burger or Whataburger? That's a tough call. I think they are really different. I like them both a lot. Um, gotta, I like their fries. But I think when push comes to shove, like if I had to choose one or the other, uh, I would probably go with Whataburger. But if I was just getting a burger, then I would definitely opt for. Um, I would definitely opt for In and Out. Oh man. Yeah, see, I, I, yeah, I like the scripture verse, and that's about it. So, um, <laughs> so the uh, your book, what mm-hmm. what kind of was the the story behind that, or I, I guess the genesis that made you ultimately want to write it? Well, I grew up um, a child of the church, like I was essentially born in the pew, nearly, and I was the kid who never missed a worship gathering. And that's back in the days in the eighties where it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, every mission trip, everything that you could do was part of it. And and the church handed me, I was part of these small churches in Mississippi and Georgia uh, for a while. And the church handed me this vision of what God called us to as a community of people and how we were supposed to live that out in the world. Uh, and they talked about a lot. I mean, from my, and in my the church of my youth, we talked about the church as a centrality for life a good bit of the time. And what I saw as I got older, started working in churches, that so much of what I was taught as a child still lived in the rhetoric of churches, but not in the actual application of what our communal life looked like. And so it was things like hospitality and openness to the other. It was things um, like extension of grace and peace. And I started reading the Apostle Paul, just understanding what the music kind of playing in the background of the New Testament as he writes letter after letter to these churches, what that really is, this conflict between Jew and Gentile, or, or at least the tensions that existed there and what his prescription was for that. And I, it dawned on me that, 
folks had done a really great job of sort of teasing out a scripture here and a, a paragraph there from Paul to make certain arguments about particular theological um, knots that they were trying to untie. But we weren't looking at the big scope of what he was trying to accomplish in his writing and why he was trying to accomplish it. And at the heart of that is this kind of community that uh, reaches out in love and hospitality and openness and acceptance. And almost all of that had been lost in uh, 21st century American evangelicalism. It had become the the opposite of that, where it had become, hey, these are these are the rules, or at least our interpretation of the rules, and these are the things that we're going to put more weight on than the Bible puts weight on. These are ways that we're going to try and draw out division instead of open ourselves up for engagement. And I wanted to to write about that in a way that folks who were um, not in agreement with me at the beginning of the book um, would at least be open to the argument. So it's the kind of thing for the, the kind of book I think for um, three people. It's for people who have been really wounded by the church. Um, it's for people who love the people who have been wounded by the church and want them to come back and find uh, the life that God intended in the community that God intended it to be lived out in. And three, it's for the people who have unwittingly done the wounding. And so, you know, I didn't have a, a big enough picture of what God was up to and what God was calling the church to in all of this. So it's for all of those people. And, um, I hope that it at least starts a conversation with folks who really want to investigate what God is doing um, and how he's bringing about his preferred future. So when you say people that have been wounded, you mean, you mean what specifically? Like I, I grew up extremely fundamentalist and, and so wounding to me, I think would hold a different view uh, than some. So what do you mean by people that have been wounded? Well, it's for what I mean is anyone who feels that they have been shunned or condemned or tried to or controlled by a local body of believers for whatever reason, they asked too many of the wrong kinds of questions Mm. or they were trying to figure out um, what a holy sexuality looked like when their sexuality didn't feel to them heteronormative. Um, They were trying to look at their world and say, you know, we see a lot of black churches and white churches and what's that about and how does that represent what God is doing in the gospel? Um, so it's for people who have really uh, been caught up in the crossfire on all of these um, um, wards that we keep talking about all the time, you know, like mm-hmm. war on Christmas and all of the, you know, war on the family and the war against women or for women or, or, or you know, all of these folks who look at the church and say, I have some understanding of what Jesus taught and came to do and my engagement, my uh, time in a local church wasn't what Jesus was revealing to his disciples about how to live in the world. And that's been wounding to, they've been hurt because, you know, when I was a kid, cause I like you, Seth, like I grew up uh, in a fundamentalist churches, but um, we, what happened in the church. And I talk about this in the book is that suddenly church leaders and their children started going through rough spots in their marriages. And some of them chose divorce. And now we look at those people and folks are going through a difficult time in their marriage and they show up at our doorstep 
for a worship service or in a Bible class or in a small group. And we look at them and we go, well, thank goodness you're here. We're glad we want to walk with you through this. Um, But just 25, 30 years ago, the same people were being shunned and saying, you can't come into that. And so there are other people groups that we are doing that with right now. Um, that we are saying, you can't do that and be a part of, you can't ask those questions here. You can't explore that here. And my hunch is that in another 30 years, we're going to and be the place that they come and, uh, and be loved and welcomed. Uh, and we will walk and journey with them through whatever difficult time they're having. And that's part of what I'm trying to get at in the book. Yeah. Yeah, no. So that's good. Um, one of the questions that has always been rattling around in the back of my head is, is I guess my fear for the church is, say, 60 years from now, when my kids are middle-aged, mm-hmm. is, is the evangelical, quote-unquote, church of today going to turn into the Mennonite and Amish church of the right now if we don't make a a, a difference or a choice. I mean, well, at least for the Baptists, though, there should be some good recipes. But, <laughs> but um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? And 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 you may touch on on things around that. But I'm just curious. Well, it, it really de- depends on what you mean by Mennonite and Amish. Um, well, at least where sense- I'm I'm from here, it, it, it's you know that people look at them from a distance. They don't necessarily care what they do. They're really nice people, but that's just something they do, and there's never a second thought to it. No, no outreach, no, yeah. no ministry. I, I think the life's blood of evangelicalism is fundamentally evangelistic. <laughs> right. So I, I don't think that that will ever happen in evangelicalism. What will happen, because there is, even when we see... Um, some really toxic portrayals of evangelicalism in the public square. Uh, if people were to get down to the root of what's causing some of that, what they will discover is that evangelicals, for whatever reason, really think that the world should be converted to something, right? And that part of their existence in the world is to play a role in that conversion. So um, the the Amish don't necessarily feel that way. You know, there have been in the last hundred years less than 100 Amish converts who have stayed. Mm. Um, I know this because my my wife is very much into Amish literature and reads a lot of Amish books. We took a vacation a couple of years ago to Amish country. And uh, in many ways, it's a be- I mean, uh, it's the beautiful side of fundamentalism, right? It's very communal. Mm-hmm. It's very other centered. Uh, it's very service centered, but it is not evangelistic. And I can say that on a podcast because no Amish people will hear it. Uh, <laughs> um, and so uh, that won't happen in evangelicalism. What is um, what is more likely to happen in evangelicalism is that the people who are portraying the most toxic versions of evangelicalism, or at least hiding their other agendas behind the name of evangelicalism, which is, I think, is more more of what happens. Mm-hmm. The people who are hiding their agendas behind uh, the fig leaf of evangelicalism will place evangelicalism in a um, situation, in a posture where it will simply be ignored, where 
someone will say they are an evangelical and we're already seeing this. I mean, I think Russell Moore yeah. wrote an article today uh, kind of outlining kind of where he sees that going. What is more likely to happen is when someone says they are an evangelical, that will be associated with a set of precepts and principles that don't have anything to do with the gospel, but it has to do with a particular view of America's future. Yeah, it's it's a it's a Christianity version of politics and Jesus, and it's and it's really neither of those. So, um, yeah, and I will say that's that's what's disenfranchised me from from liberty, which is where I chose to spend money to go to school after visiting <laughs> um, Abilene Christian, and um, yeah, not to get political, but I've been so disheartened with the picture of Jesus that that the way that they treat things just betrays a, 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 a Jesus that's, that's not my Jesus. So, so that is the opposite of a beloved community. So how then instead can, can uh, I guess, our generation lean into creating a, a, a beloved community where we're at? Because I know when I drive to church, you know, the, the black churches are all together, the poor churches are all together, the rich churches are really rich, <laughs> the, the the Hispanic churches are really Hispanic and there's very little there's very little community. There's a lot of little cliques or, or that's probably a bad word. So how do you instead lean into becoming a beloved community? Well, I think there are a few things that are really key is um, one, we have to and if, I, I did this. I tried to do this at least in the the second chapter of the book where um I talk about the healing of the nations is churches, first of all, have to have a theological framework that not only welcomes and embraces others, but understands that uh, the coming together of all kinds of people from all different places and all different backgrounds, that that is central to what the gospel is. That's what um, Paul is doing. That has been God's aim from the beginning. And without that theological understanding, without that framework that says, like, no, this, this is actually the story of the Bible that God is bringing together, God is healing all the nations and bringing them together, then it will always be a secondary or tertiary kind of thing that churches will essentially, you know, take the posture of. Then the beautiful side of that is that so much of this, because it's all biblical and because it's what God is aiming for, uh, so much of it is already inherent in the practices of the church. It's inherent in communion. Um, it's inherent in worship. If we can, if we can divorce the ways that we have done that to be pretty self-serving, um, then the, those practices are already there. Um, you know, one of the things that I talk about, uh, in the book is this idea of like our practices really can save us without us having to go out and create something. Um, you know, I talk, there's a chapter in there about, um, about drinking real wine. And so what does it, what does it mean then to, um, to, to sit down at table with someone? And let's look at what happens at every time, every time Jesus sits at table, like there's an extension of forgiveness and healing every time Jesus eats with someone. Um, so who we share our table with then becomes a really big deal. And so if you, if you just couple a couple of ideas together, this idea that God really is healing the nations and taking seriously who's at table with us, maybe our table without having to change anything in our church, you know, initially, maybe our table is a place where we can start to extend healing and grace and openness to the other. So you can do that at your house. You can do that over coffee. You can do that in a restaurant mm -hmm. without saying, Hey, 
my whole congregation, we've got this big new program and, um, we're going to do all we can. And I've got some friends who are doing this. Lots of people want to talk about racial healing. Well, that's great. Um, I encourage my Caucasian friends, you know, if you look around your church and it's all white folks and my African-American friends, if you look around your church and it's all African-Americans, um, that's part of the problem. You might need to covenant with a different body of believers. Um, and if enough of us who say we take these things seriously begin to put actions behind them that take them seriously, that's when we begin to see change and growth and understanding. And it, none of that's going to be easy, but it is the task that it's, that's ahead of us. Yeah. Yeah. So hearing you speak and, and I'm, I'm currently finishing, um, Richard Beck's stranger God book. I don't, I don't know if you've read it or not, but he talks a lot about, I have it. Yeah. you have it. Yeah. Um, he talks a lot about hospitality and how just what you were saying a little bit, you've got to get out of what makes me comfortable and go to the margins and, and, and bring people in that are not necessarily allowed quote unquote at your table. Um, and, and that there's just beauty in that. And, and I, and I know he argues that you see Jesus in that, I, I guess, in the act of, of trying to serve that way. So, um, I, I just think that's, that's beautiful. Uh, so you talked a little bit about just a second ago, uh, that can be, you know, racial healing, political healing, whatnot, but how, I mean, the, the climate that you and I live in right now, especially over here, I'm, I'm 30 miles west of Charlottesville everything is so charged and, and ministers and, and churches want to take sides on, you know, race or white supremacy or anything like that. So how do you, how does a church or, or a, a layman in, in the church walk that back and begin to recenter that into a way to, to bring people in or, or to go to those people? But how can you do that without being disingenuine? Um, but, but how can you do it in, in, in a good way? Well, I think you're exactly right in that we live in a particularly charged political climate where you can't say – and just to, just to name the elephant in the room, and this is particularly thorny for, for pastors right now, you can't say anything without it being taken as a referendum on President Trump. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you, you can't even – you can't speak to a particular policy – without being castigated as either pro-Trump or anti-Trump, which is terribly unfair. Because the one thing, and I think Martin Luther King is a great example of this, as, as well as some other you know, legendary pastors of the past, and I think this is one of the things that Beth Moore is doing really well right now, is that the path forward for most of us in the pastorate is that we really got to talk about particular issues. And regardless of what candidate or what the news headline. So, you know, for our congregation, this church has a long history of talking about uh, refugees and immigrants. And so when we talk, that's the one thing that we can talk about now that doesn't carry that baggage because uh, we can look around and say, well, you know, we've been talking about this for 12 years, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and so the, the only way forward, and I think we just have to, we're in a time where we have to be crystal clear about this. So, um, this particular thing matters to us as a body, and here are the reasons. And it's, it matters today regardless of who we elect to the Senate or regardless of who is in the White House because those things will change. 
Mm-hmm. And um, we are not, I think more than ever, we have to be very clear about the fact that we are not choosing sides. And the, the reason we don't choose sides politically isn't because there's not a right and wrong side in a lot of these things. To a person, and we know inevitably that those things will change. Um, in uh, seven or, I guess, in three or seven years, um, we will have a different occupant in the White House or coming into the White House, regardless, right? Yeah. And so, what do I want to give away in terms of my ability to speak and my voice now, knowing that that's going to be different? But you know what I can do, because um, we live in Texas. Um, like uh, we're going to, we're going to stand with our, um, we're going to stand with kids who were brought to this country by their parents from Mexico, um, and under no, for no fault of their own are here. And the, the, everyone that we know is contributing to their own future, contributing to the fabric of our community. We can stand with those people because we've always stood with those people. Uh, and regardless of who's in the white house, we're going to do that. Um, we're going to stand against racism. Mm-hmm. We're going to stand against misogyny and sexism. And, um, you know, it, it's the people right now, Seth, who who can't say anything about President Trump because they didn't say anything about Bill Clinton. And it's the people who said so much about Bill Clinton and now are being silent about Trump in terms of their sexual ethics. Those are the people who speak without authority. But if we are consistent in what we believe, uh, and in and out of season, regardless of what's happening around us politically, at least when people make that charge against us, and I've had this happen, I had it happen a couple of years ago about something that I wrote. And I said, no, 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 go back and look at this, 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 and this that I wrote three or four years ago when we had a different occupant in the White Mm -hmm. House and I was saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, If you're seeing it differently now, that's really got to do with you. And and so we can't make everybody happy, but we can at least keep our own integrity. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, and everybody's going to filter everything through whatever lens I was given or taught, you know, through through school or through raising up. Um, You know, thinking about reconciliation in all forms of the church there's a there's a song by either the gungor band or gungor i don't know what it is and and one of the lyrics is church has to stop being us or them it should be us for them um and that it it brings that to mind as well as and i know in texas and, and quickly becoming that way in virginia the the current majority will change also in seven or eight years i mean we both white and and blacks are quickly being outnumbered by almost every other race, which will bring an entirely different, entirely different everything. Um, so um, I want to circle back around to the book and, and something we haven't talked on much. Um, you talk about an unarmed empire, which mm-hmm. I don't quite understand what you mean by that, but I want to be careful because I know you're in Texas and I know I was raised in Texas and, and I know we got guns. And I know mm-hmm. we are armed. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's what many that's what many people politic on everywhere. So, what do you mean by an unarmed empire? I guess in relation to a you know a community. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, really, this is comes from uh, from the way Jesus enters into the world. That Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God. The 
the kingdom of God is here. Um, and a kingdom, uh, like an empire, it is an empire that it has a rule, a ruler, a people and a place, uh, that places, um, the church, uh, the, the, the places anywhere that the king's rule is done, right? So that's what an empire is. It is a place where the one who rules is followed um, because he is the one who rules. Uh, and then unarmed because Jesus enters the world. And it's good to talk about this during the Advent season, um, though I don't know when you'll publish it, but that's when, we're, <laughs> that's when you and I are talking about <laughs> Fair it. Fair enough. Um, that Jesus comes into the world completely vulnerable as a baby. I mean, you know, um, and sadly enough, there are a couple of stories every year that you hear of a baby who dies from exposure and all these other things, can't feed himself, can't work, can't produce anything. And then as an adult, he sends out his disciples in Luke 10, and he says in the, the uh, translation I use called The Voice, The Voice Bible, uh, that he sends them out into the world armed only with vulnerability. And Jesus goes to the cross and Paul suffers hands of the through so many of the other disciples uh, in vulnerability. And so what God's kingdom is, is an unarmed empire. People who follow this king, who are dedicated to this king's rule and reign, but enter into the world, a world full of wolves, uh, but they are unarmed. Uh, they go without, with the only protection they have being the protection uh, approved and uh, delivered to them by God. So when I think of, when I talk about unarmed empire, it's about a posture of Christians toward the world that we serve God and all that we do is to foster God's kingdom. Um, but we do so not like the Romans did at the edge of a sword or lots of military powers throughout the ages where we are going to enforce peace through displays of power by being vulnerable, by saying, um, we know we're not going to be received by everybody. We know that there are going to be slings and arrows. Um, we know that there are going to be shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments and all of the things that the disciples suffered, but they still did it that way for a reason because they knew that God's power is made per perfect in weakness and there are no needs for these grand displays of power when the one who stands behind you is the most powerful force in the universe. So we have no fear, as Dallas Willard says, for the Christian, the, the world is a completely safe place to be. And so we enter into that calling, enter into God's world um, unarmed because we are trusting in God to deliver us from all things. Oh, man. See that? That's, that, that's, it's a little bit scary. And I think honestly, it would be scary for most people across the country. Cause I know in America, it seems like we have many religions. There's Christianity on Sunday and the rest of the week, it's football, uh, more <laughs> football. And then, and then war. I mean, we're darn, we were born doing it, um, as a mm -hmm. country. So, um, so what do you do as, as a pastor? You're standing up and you're preaching that on Sunday, and you're gonna—I'm sure you're gonna get pushback. Uh, well, mm -hmm. at, at least in my church, I think you would. Your church is probably used to it, um, maybe. <laughs> so, what do you do? Um, I'm not a pastor, but if there's any listening, to to preach a—it sounds sort of pacifist, but also not at the same time—to preach that version of relationships. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think one of the things that you have to do is first you have to you have to embody it as a person that you do not whatever it is, whether you're a pastor or whether you are sell real estate, where that you do not live the way you treat your children, uh, your spouse, that you do not live from a place of violent or coercive power to get the people to do things that you want them to do. Um, so that's that's one of the ways. Um but also, I think, and this is what Jesus does so marvelously throughout the Gospels, is that he unmasks and undermines the notion that uh, that coercive, military, physical, uh, manipulative power, he uncovers those things to be the evils that they are. If you look through the, the teachings of Jesus, the people who come off the worst are the ones who try to use power to control or manipulate. Uh, from the way Jesus talks about leadership when he says, uh, you know, the, the Gentiles lord it over others, but, but not with you. Well, what, is, what does he mean by that? I mean, that's a, that's a teaching that people kind of gloss over and they think, well, don't be mean uh, to, to people who, are, who serve under you. Um, but what Jesus is getting at is that like power, um, the use of top-down coercive power um, is not the way things are done in the kingdom. If if they were the way that things done in, were done in the kingdom, then God would send a lightning bolt and kill everybody uh, versus this baby who comes in a manger uh, to be sacrificed on a cross to take away the sins of the world. Uh, the, you know, what, um, you know, uh, this, is, this is Paul talking about uh, the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. This idea that, that, a certain kind of power is indeed powerless um, when it comes against the the power of love and of self-sacrifice. And that's the gospel story. Um, you don't see the disciples taking over, beating anybody up, bullying anyone, demanding things. They just don't do it. Jesus doesn't do that. And, and when he's faced with a question during his trial— he just says all the power that you, you know, all the power that you have comes from God because Jesus understands that he is about to dethrone the way that power is understood in our world through the mechanism of the cross and overcome defeat, sin and death, which are up until that point, up until the point of Jesus's death, the most daunting powers in the universe. And, and you get you keep preaching that message. You keep revealing that. And so you say, um, like look through history if you're you know if you're if you're preaching on Sunday just say, look through history. Um, Nero thought that that was a, that power worked that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Hitler thought power worked that way. Um, Napoleon thought power worked that way. Over and over and over again throughout history, there are uh, these powers, and when you get when you get down under it, you see that uh, while small acts by, done by what they would have considered powerless people um, to then to then move the world to their cause. Yeah. And it, it, long enough, people begin to form an imagination around it. Yeah. And I mean, thinking back to you talking about how the disciples never did that, the one time they did try to take up arms and lop off a guy's ear, Christ immediately said, we don't, that's not what we're doing here. Let me repair yeah, it. This is and not. Even more than that, he says, "Get behind me, Satan!" Yeah. Like there is a, that Jesus associates that kind of obstructive, uh, bloodletting power, um, 
with forces that I don't know that we want to be associated with. Yeah. So, so love trumping over not to have to play on words, uh, love, love striding over the rules. And I, I think it's impossible to miss how Jesus behaves uh, and how the disciples behave, given the fact that you, to go back to the political point, um, there, there are very few biblical characters, both in the first and second Testament who lit like whatever governmental power they lived under, it was worse than ours. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. 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 They were slaves or I mean the church or, or, or God's people have always been enslaved and it, and at least currently we're not that. So, um, well maybe to capitalism, but that's something different. Keeping in mind with preaching a, a gospel of love and, and trying not, to be warlike or, or, or aggressive. Is there ever a, a case then as a, as a nation or quote unquote, a, a church body to, to go and defend something then, or should we always just, just turn, turn to a, a posture of, of, uh, I don't know what the word is, help, not helplessness. To, uh, I, I don't know what the word is. I, I'm struggling to find the word, but I think you know that. That's it. Nailed it. My thesaurus is broken today. <laughs> um, it depends on what you mean. I do think I'm not a pacifist, um, though. I think we need to take pacifist thought much more seriously, um, and it really needs to be placed in a realistic dialogue with just war theory, if for no other reason that I've never seen a war in history where just war stopped us from going to war. Um, just war theory. Um, as far as I know, has never stopped a nation from going to war. So it seems to be a theory that allows us the freedom of conscience to do what we wanted to do anyway. But I'm not a pacifist. Uh, and I, and so I do think there are times where uh, the state has to defend itself or defend the vulnerable and the weak. Mm -hmm. our, our inclination is probably to do that more quickly than I would like. But I, I understand that we live in a world where there is real evil. And I think there are some things that we have to and can only truly understand as powers and principalities. And uh, those things have to be resisted. Um, as there a time for the church to defend something, it depends on what you mean by defense. Um, because the best critique is always creativity to create something more beautiful and to, to work towards something more holistic. So uh, obviously churches aren't going to go to a physical war against anyone. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, but, I mean defense in so much as you'll see in, in your references earlier, you know, we have to fight back against the war on Christmas or fight for the 10 commandments to stay up at this public park or fight for, I mean, whatever it is, fight for yeah. abortion, fight for, not letting people be LGBTQ mm -hmm. and I'm missing a letter and I'm sorry. LGBTQIA is what you're. Oh gosh. You're, I missed two letters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, it's changing pretty frequently. Uh, I, here's what I think the church's role is. Um, we are to love and advocate for people. So, um, I'm trying to think, of, I'm sure there are examples. I just can't think of them. I can't think of a situation where making sure that there's a nativity scene down at the courthouse 
is really going to make a difference in the lives of people who are either away from the Lord or suffering greatly. I'm sure that someone, someone will make an argument and say, I know uh, someone who was mm-hmm. walking down and saw a nativity at the courthouse and it changed their life. Well, that's, that's great. I'm sure that story is out there somewhere. Right. I don't hear that story a lot. And I work, you know, um, uh, I live around a lot of Christians and I'm at a big church and I just haven't heard that story. <laughs> right. Um, I just haven't heard that story. Uh, so more times than not, what we're really doing is saying we want to keep we want to keep our religion and our religious beliefs central and privileged in a particular way, um, and that's not that's not particularly helpful in winning people um, to God's love. Um, so are the things that are being fought for, absolutely, but I want to make sure that we use the right weapons. And the right weapons, regardless of what we're fighting for, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we, if we aren't using those weapons, then, or, or if we can't use those weapons to fight for the things that we're fighting for, we're fighting for the wrong thing. And, and, and I want us to, as a church, to really look at what the New Testament means when it talks about loving people. Because what typically happens is that we decide a course of action or we think we know what's best for other people, and we will set out on it and then r- rationalize how that thing that we're doing is actually love, right? Right, um, right. Well, I, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's every abusive husband and every abusive boyfriend that I have ever known, they were doing that to their girlfriend or their spouse, their wife, every single one of them can tell you that they did it because they loved him. You know, OJ Simpson in the back of his white Bronco is telling the police, all I did was ever love Nicole. Um, up until the point still where he was virtually cutting her head off. Right. And so we wrap anything, we wrap our actions around terminology to make ourselves feel better. And we don't ask the question, well, does this seem, does it feel like love to the person that it's being enacted on? I, I know people who would say, you know, art tax, you know, someone becoming going through sexual reassignment surgery. I think we ought to stand up against that and we ought to fight it. Um, and we do it because we ought to love them. Now, I know people who could say that with a straight face and mean it. And uh, I also know people who would say that the same thing. And, and what they really mean by it is I don't like those people. Yeah. And so it's a question of motives and heart and being serious about what if what we're saying is actually what we mean. Mm Man, well, Sean, I want to be want to be respectful of your time and your family's time. I'm sure you're you're taking away time from your from from your wife and, and from your kids. So, um, oh, they're all asleep. <laughs> yeah, mine are as well above, but uh, we'll see if they wake up with me. Um, and so it's and I think you've already answered it, but I want to just hit the nail on the head, and then after the last question, just just let you plug the book a little bit and anything else that uh, where you can direct people to find you is um. The question I've asked everyone is, what is one thing as as a church community, regardless of your denomination, that we can step into that would that would further the kingdom in a generative way? I would say this that every church leadership and maybe just do uh, do it even in a in an assembly so everyone can see it. I don't know how practical that is for everybody. It might depend on your church size, but needs to put a big map on the wall and draw a circle 
um, about five to seven miles away from wherever it is that they meet and look at each other in the eye and say, um, everything within this five miles, uh, we belong to this community. Um, and not that they belong to us, mm-hmm. but we belong to this community. And because we belong to them, we are going to orient ourselves around serving them with love, meeting them with their needs and being as vulnerable as we can and open and unarmed as we can to this community. I think that would reshape the world. So whatever elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, um, if you've got a homeless population in that five to seven miles, if you've got, um, whatever underserved, if you've got wealthy people within that seven miles say, okay, like, um, we belong to them. God put us here for a reason. And it is fair for them to make demands of us because we belong to them. And every church can just walk those five or seven miles and, and pray for that community, meet that community, know who's there, know what the needs are without this end game of how can we get you to come to our church? Mm -hmm. Uh, But we just want to love you with the metric being, we're not going to do anything to you that we wouldn't want someone else to do to or for us. Um, If you don't want someone else in your face about all the things that they perceive that you've done wrong, we're not going to do that. If, if you don't want someone um, harassing you if you, if you want someone to be a good neighbor and to know your needs and know your story, if you want someone to mow your yard, whatever it is, <laughs> that we belong to you in a particular way and we're going to do our best um, to, be God's, to be God's ambassadors in this place. That's what I would, that's what I would say to mm. all those people. Mm. No, that's big. I think, yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't say any better than that. That is, that would change the world. So um, in wrapping up, where would you direct people uh, to buy the book, uh, to get engaged, to converse with you, um, just to get involved a little bit? Where would you point people? Well, first of all, the, the book is available at Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble, just those places where lots of folks get their books mm-hmm. now. And it's Unarmed Empire. And my name is Sean Palmer, S-E-A-N is how um, I spell Sean, or at least how my mother gave it to me. <laughs> um, but if you live in Houston... Best thing we do is to come down to our uh, elder campus, our downtown campus for Ecclesia, and buy the book there, only because you'll get it cheaper there, and all of the proceeds for that go to Harvey Relief, mm. so Hurricane Harvey Relief. So if you're, um, if you're in the area, which I know most people aren't, uh, that's the best thing to do. But you can get it on Amazon pretty easily enough. You can, uh, I'm easy to find through the Ecclesia uh, webpage. My email is just Sean Palmer at ecclesiahouston.org. Mm-hmm. Follow me on Twitter, Sean at Sean Palmer, um, Facebook. I'm pretty easy as a, as you have found out, <laughs> right? I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, and, uh, love talking with people about the content of the book and the last chapters are the best chapters. So, um, stick with it through the end. <laughs> yeah. Good, good, good. Um, well, I greatly appreciate you coming on. Appreciate your time. Uh, enjoyed it, Sean. So, uh, hope you have a good night and, uh, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. God bless. You too. Read an awful lot about you. People say there's a facade around you. 
They say the fact you never speak Makes it difficult to just believe They ask me if I ever doubt If I ever think I'm better off without They say they'd rather die alone They live believing in a ghost yeah. I always said Though he slay me, I will trust him That's Job 13, 15, though it pains me, I will love him My friends say he's gone and I should curse him and die Another bell tolls and I see another hearse going by But I ain't inside of it I don't feel no sense of entitlement I may not deserve to ask these questions, but I got them Why do bad things happen to good people? Ain't one of them But when good people suffer, how should I look at them? You see, I'm just a man